0: happy October. Leah Pika here. Today's guest is an analytics and e-commerce legend who's helping companies win with their customers by presenting their data for impact. Stay tuned to find out who's strutting their stuff on Present Beyond Measure episode 37.
1: Welcome to the Present Beyond Measure show, a podcast at the intersection of analytics, data visualization, and presentation awesomeness. You'll learn the best tips, tools, and techniques for creating analytics, visualizations, and presentations that inspire data-driven decisions and move you forward. If you're ready to get your insights understood and acted upon, you're in the right place. And now your host, Leah Pika.
0: It's October, people. Fall is upon us. The leaves are turning. The air is chilling. And that has nothing to do with today's show, but I bet I had you thinking that for just a second. (laughs) All right, so I'm gonna be lots of places in the next few months. Where am I going to be? Well, if you are in the Philly area, I would love to meet you at the Digital Analytics Association Philadelphia Symposium this Thursday. My friends Jim Stern and Adam Greco are speaking amongst some really big names. So this is going to be a very special event. If you're going, please hunt me down and we'll chat. This is also your last chance to sign up and join me at the Digital Analytics Hub the following week in Austin, Texas. It is the premier analytics conference in the country and a very interesting, unique format. Um, these intimate huddles, lots of upfront FaceTime with amazing thought leaders in this space. I'll be delivering the keynote on the main day and hosting a very rare offering of my full Inspired Insights Data Storytelling Bootcamp as well. By the end of that workshop, you will learn how to plan, design, and deliver your data story in a way that informs decisions, inspires ideas, galvanizes stakeholders into action, and communicates the value of your work. Seats are really limited, so you don't want to miss the chance to get this information in your hands at this rate. So you can learn more and sign up at leahpika.com slash dahub. And finally, if you're in the mood for a Benelux getaway to Northern Europe, I will be keynoting Conversion Hotel in a secret island off the Netherlands. And I have heard amazing things about this event. I'm really honored to have been invited. So I'd love to see you there too. And I never thought I'd say the word. Benelux on this show. So all of those links are going to be on the show notes page for this episode. All right, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone. Today's guest is the president of Mind That Data, where he helps executives at retail and online brands understand how their customers interact with merchandise, advertising, and channels. He has nearly 30 years of hands-on analytics experience and a proven track record as an executive at a $10 billion a year retailer known for optimizing catalog marketing budget, email personalization, persona development, and most importantly, five-year sales forecasts that accurately project where your business is headed, given your strategic choices. His blog is one of the most widely read in the marketing industry, and he has been interviewed by the New York Times, the Boston Globe, and Forbes. So with that, I'd like to introduce you to Kevin Hillstrom. Welcome.
1: Hi, hey, welcome. Thanks for the nice intro.
0: <laughs> Well-deserved. That's how I roll. <laughs> so we recently met online when you mentioned me on the Twitter, and I jumped at the chance at having you on my show because what you talked about is that you really understand the power of thoughtfully presented insights to stakeholder audiences. And I thought you'd be great for this show because you have a huge body of experience in working directly with non-technical executives. So, you know, as I speak to a very heavily um, analyst and marketer audience, I thought you could help us decode what it is their audience is looking for when we communicate to them. Does that sound good?
1: Sounds excellent.
0: Awesome. Well, first, everyone will want to hear your origin story. Tell us a little bit about how you fell into the world of analytics and marketing.
1: So I have a statistics degree from University of Wisconsin. So way back, almost 30 years ago, I got a degree and my first job out of college was working at a place called the Garst Seed Company. It was uh, a place that uh, farmers would get their seed from to plant corn or to plant Mm. sorghum. And so, I mean, it was, it was pretty geeky technical work that we were doing. And I was with people who were so much smarter than me. These people were just incredible. And I am just 22 years old and I just have my little tool set, my programming, and I really can't compete with this audience. Mm -hmm. And so. I, after about a year of seeing where things were going and seeing that I just didn't really have a place, I decided to explore a little bit with some of the programming code. And so basically I created a map. So if I wanted to pl- if I wanted to plot how a corn hybrid was performing in the state of Iowa, I, I would plant where, when the hybrid did well, I would make like a mountain. And when the hybrid did poorly, I would create this valley. So it was a, a 3D contour ah, plot. Okay. And with this plot, I was able to basically find my little place where I was, I was basically showing data in a way that nobody else was. So Mm -hmm. if I couldn't compete on math and I couldn't compete on experience, I had to compete somehow. And so that was kind of the the tool that I used. And I got to present this at a, a SAS conference back in 1990. And I then was looking to move back to Wisconsin, which is my home state and I found a, uh, a position that was open at Land's End which is a catalog company mm-hmm. and I sent I, I created a map and it was called number of June bugs killed daily on Wisconsin highway <laughs> so it, 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 it's with fictitional data you know wow. it's, it's not real um, and I did this in color because back in 1990 there wasn't a lot of color okay so I, <laughs> I, I, I did this in color and on glossy paper and I sent that with my resume
2: hmm. and
1: the, the hiring, the, the, the director of marketing there who was doing the hiring, she was ready to hire somebody else. She saw that graph when it came in. They, they brought me in for an interview and then they asked questions more than anything else, not about my skill set, but about that graph mm. and what, you know, they just wanted to know how I did it and, and what happened with that. So. I basically got the job, and that's how I got into retail was was through that graph, so so essentially having a skill set and being able to share information in a way that was different and and that people weren't used to seeing was very beneficial to my career, and that's what got me into retail and then got me jump started on the path that I'm currently on.
0: Wow, that's amazing. So if you're looking for a job, create something visually compelling. And that might just make you stand out. Is that the moral of that story? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that would be the moral of the story, Yeah.
0: Wow, that's an amazingly inventive idea. Um, so that's great advice unto its own. So I guess I want to talk about what it is you're doing now quickly. You know, if we were locked in a room for three hours, what would you and, and what you do at at Data be able to help me do by the time we come out? And who am I, ideally?
1: Well, what I do now is... I work with CEOs at retail companies or e-commerce companies, and they typically have a problem. And what 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 it really comes down to is the CEOs that I'm working with have a problem. They don't know how to articulate what the problem is, and they certainly don't know what the solution is.
2: Hmm.
1: So they will contact me. They typically read my blog, and they typically follow it for a couple of years before they contact me. And then when they contact me, they'll, they'll, they'll say a question like, um, our business is down 10% to last year and we think that the marketing team just doesn't know what they're doing. Could you take a look at our customer data and help us figure out what's going on? Mm. It's a, it's an incredibly open-ended question. (laughs) But that's, that's exactly what I want. I do not want a CEO prescribing to me what I'm going to do. Mm. So I, I I want the open-ended question. And then I have a set of code that I use and a set of analytics that I use that, as far as I know, not many other people use. So it makes me kind of unique and different, and it gives me a purpose for being. Mm-hmm. So I'm, technically, I'm not competing with a whole lot of people. And so that, mm-hmm. that 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 allows me to basically stay busy and to have a reputation with CEOs who kind of want to get things fixed but don't know how to articulate how what their problem is. So I run through my code, I run through my diagnostics, and now I've basically, in my mind, within a day or two, I've got a story for what it is that's that's good and bad about this business. (laughs) And then what I do is I I issue what I call tidbits. So every day, first thing in the morning, I send the CEO and their executive team a little fact-finding mission, kind of. So what I do is I'll say, um, I noticed that you stopped creating a lot of new items. Let's pretend it's Macy's. Mm -hmm. You know, you you stopped creating. Having a lot of new items in your stores. You started having a lot of the same merchandise over and over again. Mm
2: -hmm. And I noticed
1: that after nine months, all of a sudden your sales, sales started to decline. And Uh I looked at sales by new merchandise versus existing merchandise and I could see that, um, new merchandise sales are down 40%. Existing merchandise sales are up 10%. So I know you did something (laughs) and I will stop the tidbit right there. Now I already know what the story is. Uh huh. But I stopped the tidbit right there. And what I'm looking for now is CEO feedback. Okay. So I'm, I'm looking for the CEO or the executive team to start to beat me up. What I want them <laughs> to do is I want them to say, you're wrong, and here are the reasons why you are wrong. And they will then give me that feedback. And I don't get defensive or anything. I just, I don't even respond to their feedback. The next day I do a tidbit again, and the tidbit incorporates what I've learned with their feedback. And so basically I'm taking their hypotheses and validating if the hypotheses are accurate or not accurate, and I'm basically walking them down a path where eventually they're going to be happy with what with, with what they learned because after twenty five or thirty days they were going to be agreeing to everything they've learned all along the way, and there aren't going to be any surprises at the end of the of, of the project and that's really basically what I do. I work on a couple of these projects a month and I have found that this process works really well to get people to um, basically share stuff that they're not ready to share all in one big gulp. I can get, get them to share it on a daily basis, and I tell a story that takes a month to tell.
0: Wow. This is so interesting because one of the most frequent complaints that I've had and my students uh, complain about is that stakeholders don't know how to communicate what it is exactly they're looking for. They'll give very broad, open ended questions, and the analyst will approach an, an analysis with kind of a throwing a spaghetti on the wall approach, hoping that one of 50 metrics they extract and put in a presentation actually sticks. But you're saying, I think that you want that open-ended question. You don't want them to bias you or send you down a specific path. You want to actually have a fresh, uh, fresh take on what's happening. But you know exactly—you're so well versed in it that you know exactly what to look for.
1: I, I think that's a fair way to say that. You know, I—if if, if a CEO or a vice president is telling me what I need to do and how I need to do it. My first question would be, why aren't you already doing that at your company? You already have analysts. You (laughs) already have smart people. And so why wouldn't you already be doing that and solving the problem in-house? So Mm -hmm. I I want it to be an open-ended question because that tells me they don't know how to solve it. And then I've got a better chance to help them.
0: I see, got it. Okay, well, I'm sure that you know presentation is a very integral part and, and helping people understand what it is you're talking about is an integral part of succeeding with these projects. So, you know, one question I have is early in your career, did you have an example of anything you presented early on that really changed the trajectory of your career path?
1: I, I had a catastrophe, actually.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> Perfect.
1: <laughs> when I worked at Land's End, I had been there about three years And our business was performing well, but not as good as it had performed historically. And we had all these different business units. And all of the business units were basically marketing to the same customer. And Mm -hmm. so you can can kind of think about like if you were in, 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 if I use Macy's as an example, if you were in the cosmetics area, the cosmetics area is marketing to a customer and then women's handbag area is marketing to a customer. And they're often the same customer. And so they're kind of having Mm. a tug of war for that customer in in terms of who's going to win it. And what I did is I I created, because we were having this tug of war in-house between all these different business units, between like men's and women's and home and kids, all fighting for the same customer. Mm. I created a geeky mathematical long-term experiment for 12 months. It was a two to seventh factorial design. (laughs) Now I didn't tell a single person that's what we were executing. Okay. I I gave everybody in our marketing department, a list of customers. And I said, you can either market to these customers or you can't. Mm -hmm. And so everybody got a different list, but I maintained the master list. And so I had every combination of business strategy that you could execute for the company you know, and so that's, you know, whatever, two to the seventh is, I think it's 128. I had 128 different test panels, essentially.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: we executed this for a full year and basically learned all the secrets of the business. After 12 months, we, we knew everything. We knew the optimal way to run the business. And the optimal way to run the business was to not let all of these different little business units do their own thing, but it was to really integrate everything and have a consistent, unified message. And so I... together this incredible presentation i had maybe 200 different slides with graphs and charts and (laughs) i couldn't get anybody to pay attention to this Mm. and so i'm like okay i gotta come up with a new idea and so what i did is i got all the management of our marketing team together the day before i knew there was an executive meeting to talk about this topic and so i brought everybody together and i did a presentation just to our marketing team Mm. who already knew all the answers and so they're kind of bored with this, but the, the person who was running the marketing department, she hadn't seen this before. And so she's seen this for the first time and, and she stops like halfway through the presentation and she says, what are you doing tomorrow? And I'm like, well, I'm coming to work. And she's like, well, I need you to come to our executive meeting and you're going to spend a half a day sharing this. Mm. So so I mean So I learned something interesting about presenting there in that. Um, it didn't matter how good my slides were or how good my content was. Timing was kind of important, and because I knew that this executive meeting mm. was a day later, by setting up this meeting, I created the environment to get me in that room. Okay. So, so so far, I'm thinking I am the greatest analyst of all time. This is incredible. <laughs> I just, you know, I'm I'm 28 years old, and I know more than any anybody else. Mm-hmm. And so, I walk into this executive meeting, and I start sharing the data, and. Everybody understands what I'm saying. And I'm, so I'm like, I'm getting no questions. I'm getting none of the pushback I usually get, you know, where people usually are very critical of your slides. They're critical of your methodology and your technique. None of that. All I see is the room splitting in half. And I have half of the room nodding their head and all excited. Uh-huh. And the other half of the room are digging their feet in. You know, they're taking their heels in and They are. They're like, okay, I, I know where he's going with this. And this means my job is 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 in jeopardy because I run one of the business mm. units that he's saying should basically be shut down.
0: Oh, wow.
1: And what ultimately happened was I get out of that meeting and it felt like for about a couple of months, for maybe a month or two, it was like people were carrying you around on their shoulders because you had just discovered something that was amazing. And what ultimately happened was the CEO, who actually was on my side, was fired. And a person who was in the side of the room who didn't like what I was saying became CEO. (laughs) And I, at at the time, I had a marketing department where I had, I think I I had four people, I guess, reporting to me and my little analytics team. And I'm running the analytics for the company. And within a week after that, I lost my team. I lost my place on the org chart. And I'm just I'm like, holy cow, I have made wow. a colossal mistake because I didn't understand executive politics. I didn't understand all the stuff that's going on between CEOs and none of the communication yeah. was coming to me. And it ultimately is what I, I left the company within a year because I didn't have a, a place, really.
0: Wow. the blowback.
1: So, yeah, because of the blowback. And now now, granted, I was pretty arrogant. And so I earned <laughs> I earned the opportunity to have that happen to me. But now that that had happened to me, I moved on to a different company. I moved to the West Coast and worked for Eddie Bauer and Nordstrom, and I took a very different approach. And ultimately, at Nordstrom, the person who had landed and made my life miserable hired me at Nordstrom six years later. (laughs) So it worked out okay. Yeah. Yeah. But this whole executive, wow. how executives Shake work in the communication and the power structure and all of that was something I was so blind to that I let my arrogance get me in trouble. And so I decided wow. I wasn't going to let that happen again.
0: Wow. You know what? Thank you so much for sharing that story. You know, it's... Um, people love to share stories about the wins that they've had, but I love getting to the vulnerable side of saying, Hey, you know what? We really messed up. <laughs>
2: and, yeah.
0: and I'm so happy. I love how you framed that. It was the lesson you were ready to learn something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, cause that's what these are. And you know, I, what I, something I take away from this as well is when I think of my hotshot era, it was definitely around age 28, I was like owning a whole department. I thought I knew everything. And this, and yet, when I would present data, nothing would happen. I didn't end up having total shakeups, but nothing would happen, which is kind of almost as bad because you're mm-hmm. supposed to be helping convince people to actually do something. And that's around the time exactly when. I discovered the world of presentation and data visualization and storytelling, and I realized everything I'd been doing wrong. It was this huge watershed moment, and I really had my you-know-what handed to me um, in that I had just been completely running amok. And I think that's when I started to adopt a forever student mindset and saying, the more that I know, the less, the more that I actually have to learn, you know? So that's...
1: How did you put that into your subsequent presentations then? Once you have this watershed moment, what (laughs) things did you do to then to make an improvement on what you had been doing?
0: Oh, I love this role reversal. This is so great. (laughs) Sure. So I came across um, books that really shook up the foundation of everything I knew about presenting. It started with Presentation Zen. And then the, the, the design version of that, um, Information Dashboard Design, and Now You See It by Stephen Few. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
0: And I just went, I even looked up like Talk Like Ted to understand storytelling elements and uh, also Resonate by Nancy Duarte. And the way I tried to do it, one of the most effective things I did actually is I took a persuasive, almost like a pitch funding, um, persuasive presentation framework uh, from a woman named Olivia Mitchell, and she basically would use it to get help people pitch for VC funding. And I thought, hey, you know, it looks like a really focused framework. you know, we're trying to persuade people to do stuff. So I pretty successfully adapted it to an analytics and marketing construct where it's very focused. You have a key, you have an intro that is designed to rally people together during that meeting, get a little anticipation going, hype up the energy, which I know you've never been in a low energy meeting before. It might be hard to believe. (laughs) Um, but that would make it stand out. And then you have like a key message. Let's say you have a quarterly review. And you know what? Your key message is that you put in all these optimizations in Q1 and they fell 30% below the mark you wanted to hit. Um, So that's kind of the message, but you have all these reasons why you think that that happened. And we have recommendations of how we can regain that traction in Q2. So under that, that's kind of your key message You choose three to five main ideas or metrics or insights that encapsulate and tell the story of what is behind that message. It's the supporting evidence for that key message. And you don't pick more than three to five because what I find is that if you overwhelm your audience with lots of metrics that's the more they're trying to hold in their head, the less they are to remember anything. So, sure. and, and the less likely they will act on everything, right? They, if they have fewer things to act on, they're more likely to get it done, at least in my experience. So you put out your three to five metrics or insights and you talk about why that happened, maybe invite a dialogue, invite some arguments from the audience. Um, if you haven't anticipated them already and then you pose your recommendations and you get buy-in and you assign accountability and a time frame. And then you recap all of that and you make sure everyone's really clear on next steps. And then you leave that meeting with a sense of I know exactly what I was supposed to learn here. I can remember most of it. And I know what I'm supposed to do from here going forward. And what I'm finding is that has been one of the most useful things that I've pulled from that watershed moment of I've been just throwing this disorganized shopping cart of things at my <laughs> of numbers at my audience to something that felt really focused and defined the word actionable, at least in my experience.
1: And, and see, the, the, the method you just described helps you come across as a leader, because you're you're you know you're you're going to be perceived differently because of the way you are choosing to share information and putting accountability on people and having takeaways, coupled with a small number of things to learn that that you come across. Then that an, an executive sees you behaving like that, and they say, "Well, she has got it together. She's there's something about <laughs> her that is different." And ex- executives like to look for those kind of soft skills and they trust, if, if those soft skills are repeated over and over again and the executive sees that that's happening consistently and the person is following through, th- they now trust you and they're gonna come to you with other problems and th- they're gonna, your career path goes down a different trajectory once you've earned trust like that. So you, you clearly learned something about a, a softer side of presenting coupled with leadership and you're using that in a good manner.
0: Well, I appreciate that. And actually, I've never thought of it that way. If I really think back to before and after I used that approach, I do remember going in the room in that before with this mindset of, oh, God, I hope something I put in here. I hope they like anything in here. And like almost in an apologetic, like, I'm sorry for living, guys. Here's our monthly metrics. Mm
2: -hmm. But
0: then after that, I was going in there with more of a assertive I'm the story. I'm telling the story. This is, you know, what we put together. And yes, I want to, I want to be in charge of corralling the conversation around who is doing what. And I never thought of it that way (laughs) from a leadership perspective. Yeah.
1: I I had an analyst when I worked at Nordstrom and she was probably the worst analyst of the 20 (laughs) some people in my department. I mean, she could not put together good presentations and she could not you know, She didn't have the math background yeah. or the programming background you need,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but she was the person that, so if we went into a meeting with, with other executives and one of my analysts got in trouble, I noticed that she would bail that person out. She oh. would just articulate in a way that the whole room would just have this calm. So she did what you're describing. You know, she's... She she would boil the message down to a couple of key points. Mm -hmm. She would get the room to agree that this is important. She would then say, "Okay, how are we going to attack this problem?" She would assign. She she was like a a analyst or low-level manager, and she's assigning directors and vice presidents chores before they leave the meeting. And Mm -hmm. they would all just listen, and they were in a spell. And so that there's a skill to doing that. And and so in her case, then I would have to develop her math skills. And yet use her in a way that was, you know, to, to get our department to, to go somewhere positive. And she was that voice. And so you're describing mm-hmm. something in your career that's very comparable to that. And that's that's it's just it's so powerful when somebody can say things and you can get a room of executives then to say, OK, I trust this person. And therefore, that that trust is a big deal. Once they trust you, they stop questioning a lot of the metrics and numbers.
0: I think that's an excellent point. And I'm really glad that you brought up trust because. A lot of the questions I get asked by students indicate to me that there is an underlying trust issue behind what some of the asks are from executives. So, what are some of the ways that you create trust with your clients that and and your analysts have been able to create with their clients?
1: I, I'd say the the first thing. This will sound really ridiculously simple, is. Executives oftentimes see the work that an analyst does and think that there is a math error or a what I would call a business error, meaning the person doesn't have the business experience to bring about the, the, the point of view they're bringing about. And so the executive is, when they're poking holes in things, they want to see if there's a math error there that they can't identify on their own and don't have the skills to do so. So mm-hmm. they're trying to probe for that. And then they're trying to probe to see what kind of business skills the person has, whether what that person is saying is actionable within the executive's mindset. The, the executive has no the executives it, it, in the companies I work with. The executives are not allowed to share the 128 catastrophes that are happening behind the scenes. <laughs> And so they they have just left a meeting where people were crying and there was yelling and there's some disaster happening and that's all confidential at nine 59 when that meeting is over at 10 o'clock, they come in and now they're sitting with that analyst and the analyst is sharing something. And a lot of times that executive is basically struggling from, from the meeting they were just in. They're struggling with the concepts in that meeting and they're looking out to the analyst who's talking about a very specific topic and they're trying to, in their mind, they're saying, how am I going to apply this specific topic to the 128 catastrophes that are happening right now? <laughs> and they can't tell the analyst that there's 128 catastrophes happening. And so mm-hmm. a lot of when you're when you're presenting is you're trying to fish for information. It's almost like you're playing poker and the other person, they're hiding their cards and they're not allowed to tell you what they have. And you're, by betting in poker, you're trying to get information out of that person. In the same aspect when I'm working with a, an executive team I'm constantly getting trying to get these little pieces of information out of them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm looking I'm looking around the room I'm seeing who likes each other, who doesn't like each other, who's tired, who's happy, who's mm-hmm. not in their head, who's on their phone and I'm trying to and I'm trying to see all these inter, interpersonal dynamics and that affects what I'm going to present to them after the first 5 minutes or so. So Interesting. Uh, a, as an analyst I mean As an analyst, you you don't have all of that background knowledge that's going on with all these executives that I might have now. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean you still can't go fishing. So when you're presenting something, there's nothing wrong with saying, is this something that's going to help you improve business? And you know, I'm being really generic here, but is is this something that's going to help you improve business? And get get an answer in those first two or three minutes. If the executive says no, that doesn't mean you did a bad job. That means that the executive's head is somewhere else. And so you could ask her, you know, what, well, what, what would help you? And as you're asking these questions, that executive is going to start to share things, quite often things that they shouldn't be sharing or things that seem really disjointed to you, but are, are probably important if you can get it, if you can triangulate and get enough mm. pieces of data. So I like to, when, when I, when I visit a company and I'm presenting to the executive team, a lot of times the analytics team will come in and they're angry because they were supposed to solve this problem and the the company hired me instead. And I will I sit down with them afterwards and I will tell them the perspective of the executive team. And this is what the executive team is thinking about. And here are the things you could do to make them happy. And they'll frequently say, well, I didn't know that any of this was going on. And so I think mm-hmm. as an analyst, it's, it's perfectly fine to ask questions back and to, to fish for some information and try to get as much information out of these executives as you can. And that will help you then pr- prepare a better presentation. Even if it's not that day, it'll help you the next time.
0: I love this advice because it's all about probing and staying curious, which are my words for life this year. I adopted those as my official brand statement for the year. Um, Because, you know, what I think sometimes can happen is even when a request comes through to present information, it can come across really vague, like campaign results things like that. And probing, I encourage uh, students to probe with additional questions, kind of like what you're saying. So I'll ask them like, what's hot on your list right now? What would make your quarter a win? You know, what yeah. What's keeping you up at night? Um, what would make your life easier or better right now? And you don't often ask stakeholders these questions. They're not often probed that way. But it kind of gets more to the heart of the fact that they are human beings with beating hearts and they have needs. They have basic human needs that a lot of what you're talking about, I think, the behaviors you're talking about are trying to meet. Like, for example, if they're trying to keep mom around uh, catastrophes happening, they might have a need for certainty that they are keeping things quiet They're handling them on their own and they don't have to deal with what's the unpredictableness of sharing. What happens if they share what's really going on with someone they're not used to sharing with or don't have that trust with? Sure. So I think what is so great about that is that probing the way you're asking and helping teasing out what those real challenges that stakeholders are facing that they may not share right away is helping them to actually meet their needs through the work that you're doing.
1: Uh, I'll give you one more example.
2: Yes. I,
1: I was in a meeting once with my boss, the president of the company, and my boss tells me in this meeting, I'm going to fire you in the next month or so because your, t- your team of analysts are awful <laughs> and your leadership of this team is terrible. And I, I just don't think this is going to work anymore. So I'm going to prepare the paperwork to have you move on. And I just wanted to let you know that. And so this meeting mm-hmm. ends at right before 10 o'clock on a Friday. And at 10 o'clock, I have my staff meeting with my analysts. And so I walk in this room, and I am seating. I, I, I know that my analysts are doing a good job. I know that this isn't their fault in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I did with my analyst team was I taught them little cues in my language. I said, I'm not going to be able to share everything with you that's happening, but I'm going to use code words. And if you pay attention to what I'm saying, and you listen for these code words, it's going to give you an idea of what's going on. And so in my staff meeting now, I'm presenting, you know, here's what happened last week, here's what's going to happen. And I was just, I would just dump in about seven or eight of these different phrases. Mm -hmm. When that meeting was over, one of my analysts came to me and closed the door and she goes, something's going on, isn't it? And I said, "Well, what do you what do you mean?" And she says, "Well, you said," and she she written down the phrases I used, and she was actually able to triangulate. She triangulated to the wrong thing, mm. but she triangulated close enough that she knew how to help me. Wow. And 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 so part of it is just fishing and just listening for these little verbal cues that people give. Yeah. And as and as as you learn different personalities have different verbal cues or different ways of sharing information, you can triangulate what the problem is and you can at least try to offer some help. You may not know what needs to be done, but you can at least, you know, and, and this person, I because I, I was just in this meeting, I felt miserable, right? I'm like, well, my career's ending today. Mm-hmm. This is horrible. Yeah. And so she comes in, you know, and I know she reports to me, but she's, she was able to say, I know something is going on
2: mm-hmm. and that
1: makes you feel better. And so now you trust that analyst. And so that analyst actually made it through that transition with me and and did a really good job. But she was able to understand all those little hidden communication cues.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And you know, actually, before you said something interesting, you said that you will adjust how you're about to present or what you present based on interpersonal dynamics that you've just observed. So I would love to hear more about that, too.
1: Well, I'm I'm doing a presentation um, the first week of September. I'm going to visit a company, and they own multiple brands. And this company has – they've got leaders that have different ways of doing things. One of the leaders is really good at math. And so I'm going to have an appendix for that leader. I'm not going to share all the math in the meeting with all these people that are going to be bored by it. But I have an appendix that has all the different key pieces that this person will ask about. And when that person asks, I'll say, go to the appendix, page 79.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And on page 79, I've already pre-thought all that for that person. I'm going to have people who are afraid of technology. And they they they, they don't trust um, mobile marketing and e-commerce as much as they should. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to have, in, in in for them, I've got a whole section based on, I'm going to protect your part of the business that you love And I'm going to save money in this different area. So I've got a piece of that presentation already prepared for that part of the audience that I know is scared about all of that. I've got the financial folks like the chief financial officer who need to save money. And so I'm going to have a piece of the presentation that talks about how I'm going to save them all of this money that they can reinvest elsewhere or they can just pocket So I'm I'm building the presentation for all of those different audiences. And if I know that a minority of the audience likes something, I put it in my appendix. If I know the majority of the audience is going to be interested in it, or I believe they're going to be interested in it, then I'm going to make that a section in my presentation. And I'm going to focus on that. And, And in fact, if I know that they really care about it, I'm going to share almost everything before I even go on this trip to this company. I'm going to share it with them. So they already have it so that when I show up, they were at a point now where it's not me presenting and being bombarded with questions and being yelled at. It's we already have a common basis and we know where to move forward. Now, let's talk about moving forward as opposed to spending two hours going over the facts. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to build all of those different pieces into my presentation ahead of time based, based on my knowledge of the people's personality.
0: Wow, that's very interesting, especially because... Oftentimes, people don't know what to include in their presentation versus what they put in the appendix. And typically what I've done is looked over uh, and said, does this metric or insight apply to the story that I'm telling? Um, And if not, it should go in the appendix. But I like how you're adding in like thinking about the personality types and typically what people are looking for of your audience um, to make that determination.
1: and an executive likes it when an analyst, when the executive asks the question, an analyst says, "Well, I've already thought of that, and here's the answer."
0: Mm.
1: The executive, that's that's an area where the executive is going to have trust.
2: Big and win. Say, okay.
1: Yep. I, and and so it doesn't even matter what you're sharing now. You you built some trust, and that person's going to let you. They're going to give you more latitude to do more work and and do it your way.
0: Exactly. Yes. And even part of that framework that I mentioned before, one of the components is trying to anticipate arguments that they're going to have against the insights you present. Um, You know, there's always that one person that says, well, I want to see the extra data or that doesn't line up with what I thought and things like that. And if you can actually get in front of that and prepare an answer, then I find that you're really winning. (laughs) You're in their head.
1: (laughs) Absolutely.
0: So... You know, we're talking about looking at the different personalities. How do you present data differently based on the audience you're presenting to? Like, what are the different elements of an audience that you're looking at?
1: A lot of the times I'm, I'm, I'm doing it's, it's like a two by two grid. I'm looking at whether you're a technical person or non-technical And I'm looking whether you're a business person or a non-business person. Hmm, So so if if I'm presenting something and the the executive vice president of human resources is there, that person is not a business person and that person is not a technical person. That person is very important, but I have to put them in that quadrant. And now in in order for me to win that person over, I have to have a presentation style that engages that person. So as an example, I used to have a meeting with, the executive team at this company every day at nine o'clock
2: mm-hmm. and I
1: had um, half of the room would be what I would call non-business, non-technical. Mm-hmm. And so these people are going to be bored silly if I go, you know, yesterday we were 5.6% above plan and we made $291,000. <laughs> They're gone, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I would do is I created a daily quiz. And so I would pass it out. It was my job to start the meeting. And so I handed this out every day. I hand out this piece of paper and it had a quiz. And it would say, um, and this is a while back, it would, it would be like when a catalog customer buys something online, does the customer A continue to buy from catalogs, B shift their business online, or C have a bad experience <laughs> and leave the company? <laughs> now I'm looking for B. I want everybody to answer B, right? Uh-huh. I know that my boss, who's technical and mathematical and nerdy and all of that, and is a lot like me, is not going to se- settle for this. Hmm. So I'm, I'm like, okay, what's the correct answer? And everybody in the room, because over half the room is non-technical, non-business, they would go, well, I think it's B. And they would have a little discussion. they go, we think it's B. And i go, you're right, the answer is B. And they would all clap and pat themselves <laughs> in the back. And now what I've just done is I have just set – For the rest of the room, what the right answer is. Mm -hmm. And my boss, who's the technical person next to me, is going to beat the living daylights out of me now over all the numbers that prove this hypothesis. (laughs) And and because he's going to treat me like this, I've already set the whole room up. This is the answer that's right, and you're all happy. Okay? Mm. So if he's going to start attacking me, he looks like a jerk. (sighs) <laughs> and, and, he, and he would start attacking me, and then the, the, the non technical, non business people would all come to my defense. Mm. And, and so at this point now, because he, I know he's going to come at me, I've got a whole bunch of technical slides. And so here's mm. the methodology we used. Here is, and, and now the, the non technical, non business people are no longer listening. Cause it's, it's geeky math. It's, and, over but now their have heads. it's over their heads, but they don't care because they're happy because they got the answer <laughs> right. And I got them to support me. Right. So, so I will, I will focus on who is in the room. And, if, and I do that basically, you know, if you're a technical person, yes, no. If you're a business person, yes, no. And there's no judgment about which quadrant you land on. I'm just going to adjust how I present for those different audiences.
0: Okay, so this is great because I'm often asked how to adjust your presenting style to when different audiences are in the same room. Mm-hmm. So I guess if I, if I think about the takeaway, you're looking to maybe settle the, oh, how do I say this, to kind of answer the questions of the less technical focused folks purse. First, or is it whoever is the majority ruling party first?
1: I'm going to approach it by the majority ruling party.
0: Got it. Okay.
1: But in in my world, the majority ruling party is almost always non technical, non business people. Yes. When when you're early in your career and you're with a team of analysts, the majority ruling party is technical, non business because you haven't earned the business experience yet. Right. And so you're going to have to have a whole, you're going to have to have everything buttoned up for that audience. Yes. And then you're going to have to evolve as you, as as one executive comes in the room that is in the non-technical, non-business world. I would start with them and just give them a high level. This is what's happening. Here's what you need to do. And then go into with everybody else. Here's all the math behind it and all the technical stuff. And let's go ahead and have this discussion about all the technical stuff. I just made that person who isn't comfortable with all of it, happy and they'd either agree or disagree with me. And i fished that out right at the start of the meeting.
0: You know what? I just envisioned a sort of quadrant of non-tech tech and non-biz biz. And like what you just said, if you are technical but non-biz business, you're really focusing on buttoning up those numbers and making sure they're yeah. airtight versus maybe a business, but non technical, you're really making sure you're tying whatever you're talking about directly to the business objectives and current goals of the company. Um, What that that is so amazing. I would love to actually see like a a diagram like that. What would you say are strategies for someone who's I don't know who would be working there, but non technical and non business? (laughs) Or do they exist?
1: (laughs) It's been my experience that at least half the people I couldn't because what I'm presenting now to executive teams. Um, I would say like, if, if you work in human resources, I'm going to say you're non-business. And I don't mean that in a negative way. Sure. I just, I just mean that you're not, your job doesn't depend on whether you deliver profit numbers to the company or not.
0: I see. Right. Your,
1: your, your job is so, so important, but so different. So, so that right. to me is non business. If I'm in information technology, I'm going to call that non-business. Mm-hmm. Without you, the company doesn't run. But your job is not to deliver a ton of profit. Your job is to put the systems in place that enable somebody else to generate profit.
0: And right. so I'm,
1: I'm with, with a non business, non technical. So the IT person is going to be technical, non business. Mm-hmm. But, um, I, I might have a, I, and frequently in my companies, I'll run across a person who's in charge of quality control. They're making sure that when you buy a shirt, it doesn't, you know, you don't have holes in it within a week. Mm hmm. Okay, that person has an extremely important job. It's typically an executive vice president level job, but that is non-technical, non-business. But if I I win that person over, that means I can win over somebody who's in inventory management who has to buy a certain number of those items to sell so they don't sell out too fast. Right. I have to win that person over because we're going to make some website improvements that are going to increase conversion rates by 10%. So, therefore, I need 10% more units to be purchased so we don't run out. I need that person's trust.
2: And right. that person
1: will trust me if the quality assurance person trusts me. So, yes. I'm, I'm always kind of looking in that quadrant and figuring out where people are. And then I'm going to adjust my message based on where people are.
0: This is so amazing. So there's one quadrant left that would maybe the most challenging or not, depending on how you see things, is that someone who happens to be really technically sharp and have that business acumen. So how do you how do you make them happy?
1: I tell them we can agree and disagree.
2: <laughs>
1: I'm serious. I, no, I because love that. Those, those people get competitive. And if, if you, if you come up with something that's new and clever and they haven't thought of it, that gets to be a problem. And so they, they, mm. they, they may beat you up even when they agree with you because they want to put you down on the pecking order. Right. Um, I, I had one person like this in my career and anytime my team had an idea that she thought should have been her idea, I would let our, I would, I told our department upfront, all 24 people, if she says this is her idea, we're going with it. <laughs> and they would be so frustrated, but we invented this. And I would say, well, yeah. here's the thing, because she's in the information technology area, if she doesn't want to work on it, our ideas don't get implemented. Mm. So, so because she's technical and is business savvy, we're going to, whenever we're going to try and get her to adopt our ideas. And we're going to try to get her to adopt them as hers. And every single time she does that, we're going to look at each other and smile because we know we won. And so we would be in meetings and we would basically our presentation was to get her to go. I know what we need to do. And then she would tell us what we need to do. And we'd all just nod and smile. and go. Oh, okay. that's a
0: great idea. It's
1: great. Yeah. Oh, you're you're brilliant. And we <laughs> we. So, so that's how we would manage a person like that. But but often you can't win those battles with those people. And so and so yeah. I will in, in meetings I will just say, Well, I think we can agree or disagree. I've got my numbers are are good, I've double checked them, I know I what I'm doing is accurate. In my job I can say this and other people can't, but I can always say I've worked with two hundred companies and so I've seen right. a lot. Yeah. You know, an average analyst doesn't have that card to play. But but you basically <laughs> say, you know, I, I put <laughs> this up exactly. It will happen. But well, I've
0: I've it up and I'm confident.
1: And you can just agree to disagree if the other person doesn't like what you're saying.
0: This is all so useful. You know, I'm hearing understand your allies, understand them as your allies, try to make them your allies, help them adopt it as their idea, but don't try to win every battle with them, especially if they are an essential ally to moving forward. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: Incredible advice, Kevin. So I call the next segment the upgrade. This is a power tip or a resource for doing our jobs of pre- presenting data more effectively. So do you have an upgrade tip for us?
2: Uh,
1: I, I, here's one. I, I remember I told you earlier on how I basically got, I, I split a room of people in half and I got, on the wrong, I got in with the wrong half of the executive team and it cost, basically cost me my job. My arrogance cost me my job. Yes. As that was happening um, or just before that happened, I was struggling. I'd been an analyst for six years and my career was going nowhere. Mm. And at one point I overheard the CEO talking behind a partition. I was on one side of it, the CEO was on the other side and he mentioned my name and he mentioned that I was really good at numbers, but I did, I had no business experience and I didn't know how to sell anything. And I remember I, I felt so miserable. I was like, i Probably shouldn't have heard that, but reality is I should have heard that. Mm. And my boss and the CEO had a great idea. They sent me to something called Dale Carnegie training. And so mm-hmm. if you've ever seen those, 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 those Dale Carnegie books, they were written like 70 years ago.
0: Oh yes. Um, yeah. I love them. <laughs> so,
1: so so this was a training course. It was eight weeks, every Monday night from six o'clock to eight o'clock. And it was for salespeople, people who were were professional salespeople. And so it was me and 40 salespeople and we were learning the te- techniques to sell ideas. So they, they may have to sell a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> I have to sell analytics. Right. And so one of the things that was really key out of this eight week training and they, they taught you all these different tips and psychology for how to, you know, how to, people want to be loved and they want to be treated well. I learned that there was a technique where you had to get the person to say yes three times. And that if you got them to say yes three times, it was really hard for that person on the other end of the conversation to back out of of where you were taking them.
2: Mm, Okay.
1: And so I had the same presentations that I would, I had always used, you know, the same style. I didn't change how I presented the information visually, Mm -hmm. but I, I I would use the slides to walk a person up to saying yes. And then I get them to say yes again. I get them to say yes a third time. And once I got them to say yes the third time, I would then try what the class taught me. And I would say, well, if you agreed with me this far, then here's where we need to go with this idea. Hmm. And it was like a bomb went off because all of a sudden, the exact same presentations I'd always been giving were now going places. I mean, this is, this is ultimately how I got into, when I talked earlier about how I set up a meeting and then that got me into an executive meeting the next day. Mm-hmm. This is the process that I used essentially was to get people to say yes if they said yes multiple times, then here's where we need to go. People went where I told them to go. They, uh, my, the, the marketing executive told me she was, it's like you have put a spell on this whole department. <laughs> and I was, all I was doing was using what I learned in the sales training class. And so I would, that would be my advice to, to anybody that if you are having a hard time with your information and, you know, you described how you went through an epiphany and then you went out and got additional training and that made a difference. I think that's that's the essence of what I'm talking about here. I had for me, it's, I had to go to sales training and I had to learn how to sell my ideas as if I was selling vacuum cleaners. And I went from analyst to vice president in six years after being stuck as an analyst for six years. And the only thing that really changed was that class.
0: That is incredibly valuable. And you're so right. I'm a huge fan of the Dale Carnegie work. Um, and I think that it's so true that the more that we think about that fact that we're selling our ideas and our insights, and we are there to persuade and inspire, not just to inform. I think that is what's going to lead to career trajectories like what you just talked about. That's amazing. Yep. Yep. So this is our last question, think very hard here. Imagine this very plausible scenario. You're taking a front row seat at the World of Outlaws sprint car series when suddenly you trip and fall into a rip in time and it pulls you back to the moment you're about to walk into your first presentation. What would present day you say to yesterday you?
1: Oh, present day me would tell me to shut up. Because I already know how arrogant I would have been, how conceited and confident that I was right and everybody who's listening to me was dumb and stupid. Mm. I, I, I I mean I can already picture the meeting room where I would be. I can picture who the audience is and I I would I would tell that person to have to try and be humble and to have some empathy, um, to acknowledge that they don't know all the answers. Mm-hmm. To acknowledge that they may think they know everything, but they may have a math error. Like Sheldon Cooper had a math error on the Big Bang Theory when he got to meet with yeah. Stephen Hawking. I mean, <laughs> those things happen, yeah. and you're so confident, you so you so think you've got everything buttoned up. And I, if you have some empathy and you know some compassion for your audience, that they they're, they're not, that's not their skill set.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, I would tell that Kevin. 30 years ago to, to have that mindset going into the first presentation as opposed to I am right and you're all going to love what I'm about to share with you. I'm saving your life, which is how I would have gone into that meeting.
0: Ugh, I, I can so relate. I've walked into so many meetings like that. And these meetings and audiences really have, it, have a way of bring, bringing you humility. Like <laughs> mm-hmm. my, my hashtag always going in a room is hashtag humble. Because I just don't know when I'm going to have a teachable moment, and I don't know what I don't know, right?
1: So, how do you balance hashtag humble with being confident?
0: Well, I mean, a lot of it is the work in advance. You know, like you said, buttoning up those numbers as best as possible, not rushing through things if it's possible, um, and feeling really confident in that. I do have some mantras that I go in there with, and. You know, I'm curious to hear what you think about them, but you know, I've gone in there saying I have been selected to present this story because I know more about this particular story the way I tell it than anyone in the room. Mm -hmm. And it's the story that I have chosen, but it's not the only story, right? No one has uh, ownership over what the exact truth is. The truth is (laughs) flexible, right? So I go in there saying, this is what the story presented itself to me. I'm confident in what I'm sharing. And I am open to other possible interpretations of what actually happened outside of the concrete observations that I'm bringing in. And I'm going to be open to discussing about how to act accordingly on that. And, you know, there have been moments where people have pointed out an error or asked a question I didn't know the answer to and... As I grew more confident, I made sure to just own the fact that I'm not Siri. I can't be queried for (laughs) the Wolfram Alpha answer to every single question that's on the planet. I'm not a supercomputer. Um, And I can always get back to them later. Um, And that I'll own, I'll immediately own the fact if there's an error or whatnot, because the faster I own it and the more confidently I say, you know what? Apologize for that, guys. We'll double check some other stuff at the end. Um, But, you know, we appreciate pointing that out. But I don't miss a beat in like, oh, God, oh, the whole thing's over, career over. Like, I don't slip into a spiral in that way. Yeah. Like I used to.
1: Nope, that makes good sense. (laughs) And it's hard, because you have to come across as confident. You know, and so coming across as confident while being humble can can be a bit of a balance that that can be tough to navigate. So you described a good way of accomplishing that.
0: Thank you. It really is a balancing act. And I can't say that I've hit the nail on the head, but I think that once we're self-aware that those are two ends of the spectrum that we want to keep in balance, I think that we're going to be really set up for success.
1: Yep, I agree.
0: (laughs) Well, Kevin, unfortunately, our time has run out. This was wonderful, really valuable stuff in here. So please tell the listeners where they can keep up with you.
1: They can find me on Twitter at mindthedata, or they can follow my blog at blog.mindthedata.com.
0: Excellent. So all of those links are, and all the resources we've mentioned are all going to be on the show notes page for this episode. So again, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be on our show. I think that you've given a really useful way of uh, presenters of looking at their audiences and ways to create trust and rapport and really succeed with them. So I'm grateful to you.
1: Well, I'm I'm very happy you do what you do because. These resources have been very helpful when I was first starting in my career and, and would have certainly saved me a lot of problems. So I'm, I'm very thankful that you go about this process and have had, you know, three or four dozen of these by now. I mean, that's that, that's amazing. And it's a great resource for analysts. So thank you.
0: Oh, I appreciate that. And amen to the resources. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. All right. Wow, this was so valuable. Man, I wish I had some of these strategies when I was starting out as an analyst. So I loved the Stakeholder Saviness Quadrant so much that I've turned it into a printable cheat sheet just for you. So visit the show notes page at leahpica.com slash 037 and you can download it for free and catch all of the other links and resources mentioned in this episode. That is gonna be on my desk forever. If you've liked what you've heard, please hop on over to iTunes to subscribe, leave a rating and review. Ratings and reviews are so appreciated because they affect the rankings of the show, which gets this information into the hands of lots of other practitioners who need it. And I'll be reading out my favorite reviews on future episodes. And today's presentation inspiration is by Jimmy Stewart, screen legend. Bet you didn't see that coming. (laughs) And he said, Never treat your audience as customers. Treat them as partners. You know, I bet he never thought his wisdom would apply to digital analytics, data storytelling. And yet, this is the fundamental philosophy I carry through all of my work as a presenter of things. Treat your audience as partners. And I encourage you to carry it with you as well that's it for today. Stay warm and wishing you a fabulous week. Till next time. Namaste and namago. And that's a wrap. What is going on in those brains? And um. Oh. So that's all I'm going to say about
1: I turn into a monster. I mean, I,
2: whatever. That's not always the (laughs)
0: typical response that I hear from people. I love it.